We are coming to the end of this study I've entitled Spirit Speak, what Jesus is saying to the church. And we are in the final chapter, the very last chapter of the book and the very last chapter of the Bible. And as I've said before, I believe God saved the best for last. You know, I don't come from a faith tradition where shouting in church was encouraged, but if ever there was a time for the saints to shout, it's Revelation chapter 22. We are on spiritual shouting grounds. <laughs> so, so maybe today as we study this passage, you want to just applaud, right? You just want to clap. Maybe today you want to just say hallelujah, right? And again, as I studied this passage over over this previous week, there were moments of spontaneous praise, right? When, when I'm learning things, I'm, I'm so fascinated by where, by the final destination for every Christian, right? I, I haven't known these things before, right? I'm discovering uh, these parts of the Bible, these parts of my faith, and um, it's like a treasure hunt, Right, and when 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 I find something that is so precious, you want to hold it up, right? You're digging in the dirt, and you find a diamond, and you want to hold it up into the sun, and you want to let everyone else know that you found some treasure, right? And so you want to shout, and so we're on shouting grounds here. This is the ultimate mountaintop moment that should make even Mennonites want to stand up and shout. You know, the Holy Spirit is moving. Uh, when the when the Mennonites start shouting. <laughs> so, these glorious truths contained in this final chapter should trigger an eruption of praise from every kingdom person. These transcendent truths touch the deepest parts of us, the part that lives below the sorrow, the part that knows that the world is broken and will one day be made right again, the part of us that longs for the day when everything sad will come untrue. We come full circle in chapter 22, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to recreation. It started with an earthly paradise, and it ends where it began, with a new earth. But it's not just a recreation of Eden. This is Eden 2.0. This is paradise on steroids. Vern Poitras says of this passage, the point is that Eden is back with its fullness of blessing multiplied many times. He goes on to say, this is the apex of history, which is so much more magnificent than the beginning. So when we read about the account in Genesis 1 and 2 of uncorrupted creation before the fall, what we find in Revelation 21 and 22 is not just a recreation of the original, but it is much more magnificent. All the blessings multiplied many times over. So let's read this passage in Genesis chapter 22. We're going to look at the first five verses today, hopefully. Then the angel showed me the river of water. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God 
and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And I want you to say amen. I want you to type in the comments, amen. <laughs> they will reign forever and ever. This is the end of the story. This is the exclamation point at the end of human history, of God's story of redemption. The vision starts with a river, a river of life that is flowing from the throne of God and running through the middle of the city, a heavenly Venice. There is no sea in heaven, but there is water that is flowing from the throne, a heavenly river. We've already come across this heavenly liquid in chapter 21, verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. We take water for granted. All of us in this part of the world take water for granted. This morning, some of you took a shower and you didn't think twice about turning on the tap, right? We run water all day, every day. We water our flowers in our yard. We never think about water not being there. William Barclay says, those who live in a civilization in which the turn of a tap will bring cold, clean water in any quantity can scarcely understand how precious water was in the ancient East. In the hot lands, water was and is literally life. So we take water for granted, but the original audience didn't. Water for them was life, literally. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, and we see this throughout the Old Testament and throughout the, the Bible, really. The original context of the Bible is a desert land where water was a precious and is a precious, precious thing. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and weary land, a parched land where there is no water. Psalm 143, 6, I spread my hands out to you in prayer. My soul thirsts for you as parched land thirst for rain. And I want to especially look at Isaiah chapter 35. And I really want you to lean into this because this is where we're headed, right? We are living in a spiritually desolate wilderness. Though we can turn on the physical tap in North America and have access to 
clean drinking water in unlimited quantities. We are living in a spiritual wasteland. We are living in a spiritual desert. And so our, our souls, our souls are, are parched. And what the Bible describes as to this paradise that we're headed towards, this restored creation, this Eden 2.0, this paradise on steroids is where we're headed. That brings hope into our current situation. So where the final destination, it is a pipeline of hope into our current circumstance. Right? The future reality that should fuel our perseverance in our present struggle. In Isaiah chapter 35, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. They will see the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness as streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Yeah, this is, that is an amen chapter of the Bible, right? This is, this will happen. God said it and we trust his word. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a fantasy. This is God giving us his word as a way of creating hope in the midst of this wilderness. Christians have already tapped into this river that flows from the throne. We have a foretaste of heaven, an appetizer of glory. Jesus said in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 38, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone who believes in him. 
So this is the good news for the Christian. It's not just this paradise on steroids. It's not just this future reality. Jesus said that those who believe in him can have a foretaste of heaven right now. That the same river that is currently flowing from the throne of the Lamb in heaven, every Christian can be a tributary of this heavenly river. That we don't have to wait. It, we, we can have a foretaste of glory right now through the Spirit of Jesus. Every Christian is called to be a tributary of a river flowing from the throne of God. Our souls constantly refreshed with the living liquid of the lamb. I thought of a song, right? This is a song that I learned as a new Christian. And if you know it, I want you to sing it with me, all right? And this, this might be especially for our, our kids and our youth, right? This is a song that, um, you probably sang at vacation Bible school or probably a song that you sang at youth camp. So here we go. I've got a river of life flowing out of me, makes the lame to walk and the blind to see, opens prison's door, sets the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me, spring up a well. Stop it. No. <laughs> no. Spring up a well. And make me whole. Spring up a well. And give to me that life abundantly. Yeah, I even saw people doing the hand motions. I know. I saw Ruth doing the hand motions. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, but it this song comes straight from our theology that we should be a place of spiritual refreshment. A group of Christians should, should be an oasis, a place of refreshment for parched people. Back to Revelation chapter 22, this river that is lined with trees that produce fruit year round. Now, this is incredible. Again, I'm fascinated with what I'm learning about the new earth, right? As far as what life will be like when Jesus returns and the kingdom is consummated. And what we experience now is just a, it's, it's just a fraction of what we will experience then. Our taste buds have been massively muted by sin and creation itself has tainted what we produce. And this affects the flavor of the food and our ability to even to taste the flavor. This apocalyptic fruit will taste heavenly, an explosion of flavor in every bite that brings supernatural delight. Our resurrected bodies will have taste buds that operate at maximum capacity. No longer will the food be tainted and corrupted by sin. By the way, we will eat in the new creation. Adam and Eve ate in the garden before the fall, and we will eat in the new Eden. This passage talks about fruit, but it also mentions leaves. 
the leaves of the trees that will have healing powers for the nations. And you see now there's such, there is such division among the nations. Many nations have missiles pointed at each other. There are nations that are in conflict. There's perpetual conflict among the nations. And this could also be translated the Gentiles, right? It'll, be, it'll bring healing to the Gentiles, the nations. And so what heaven will do will heal the division between the cultures, the conflict between the cultures, where there will be perfect unity, where we're not competing with each other, where we're not fighting each other for limited resources, but we are in perfect unity. There is no division. There is no vertical separation between us and God. There is no horizontal separation between our brothers and sisters. And so in the new creation, it will not eradicate ethnicity, but it will bring about this new humanity where there is perfect unity in the midst of our diversity. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture, but we're so far from that now. Like we can't stop fighting each other. Like this is the sad story of human history. It's one conflict after another. It's one war after another. We can't stop bombing each other. But with every conflict, it should fuel the desire for that day when there will be no tension. There will be no war. The passage talks about the leaves of the tree that heals the nations. We will grow things in the new creation. We will have gardens that produce a variety of food that will be delicious beyond comprehension. Every culture has unique flavors. How many of you guys like Mexican food? Right? How many of you guys like Cajun food? I'm looking at you, warning Carrie and Ruth. <laughs> How many of you guys like Chinese food? I think I like all of these. I'm going to raise my hand to all of those. I oh, know I, I grew up with a Filipino grandmother, and I grew up with another grandmother that was from deep backwoods, Arkansas. And so I grew up with cornbread and purple hull peas mm. and fresh corn. Um, and then I also grew up with, um, with Pansit. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's all uh, Korean food, right? I'm looking at you, Mark and young man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I look forward to the day when I can sample some Korean food at your table. <laughs> but the list goes on and on. Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my Manitoba people and your pierogies. Yes, <laughs> I like those too. You know, the Manitoba farmer's sausage. Um, so that you look at the different flavors around the world, right? And in the new creation, there's going to be, there, every culture will be represented with its unique flavor and every possible flavor will be represented in the new earth. 
and the pleasure we experience now from sitting down to an awesome meal, right? Just think about that for a moment where you sit down to your favorite meal surrounded by your favorite people, right? There's this comfort. There's this joy that comes from breaking bread with the people you love. And the pleasure that we experience now from an awesome meal with people that we care about is just a hint at our capacity to taste and experience comfort from food and fellowship. All of the nations gathered around the table for the wedding supper of the lamb, a feast that never ends. In chapter 22, verse, verses, verse 3, it talks about a reverse of the curse. So again, there's these bookends of the Bible. It's all one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's all one story. 66 books written by over 40 authors over thousands of years, but it's one story. And chapter 22, verse 3 talks about the reversal of the curse that is found in Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 3, this is where it all went terribly wrong. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will, and you will strike his heel. That right there, it's called, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. That's the first gospel in the Bible, right? So Jesus who is the ultimate seed of Eve, will crush the skull of the snake. <laughs> Jesus, the skull crusher. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Can I get an amen from the moms? <laughs> Eve! <laughs> I don't know if that's an amen. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so we have massive implications of the curse. We are born under the curse, right? And so you see here where to the women, there's this, there's this longing to be connected in relationship. And I think one of the implications of the curse is that a lot of 
women in particular are defined by their relationships. And so there's this heartache that comes as a result of the curse, this heartache as you go from one relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship, and you think that the next relationship is going to somehow be the one. And, and it never, it never is what you think it will be. And these are generalizations, but there is this relational agony that comes from, and this is men and women, it's relational agony that is a result of the fall, that is a product of the curse, that we, we give our hearts to people and they break them, they crush them. And there's this sorrow that is a result of relationships that comes from sin. And then you have the curse for Adam. And Adam, he says, you're going to be, you're going to struggle. And, and your identity is going to come from what you do, not who you're with. And so you have this, for a lot of men, we have this, this identity crisis. Right? where we work so hard and we put in 50, 60, 70 hours a week and we sacrifice everything upon the altar of our career because we think that if we are successful, we think that if we win at work, we will somehow find peace and it never happens. There's this work was not originally intended to be a burden. Listen, y'all work was originally intended to be a blessing, a blessing, right? Where Adam and Eve worked together in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship with each other. I'm telling you, as, as, as a pastor, I've, I've seen story after story, marriage after marriage, that there's, there's turmoil within the marriage that is a result of sin. It wasn't meant to be this way, right? The two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one heart. And there's the original design. There was no, there was, there, there was no friction. And work was a blessing. It was an overflow of our identity as children of the Father. And so now we are under the curse and we struggle. We struggle because so many of us find our identity through relationships, who we're with. And we don't feel complete unless we're with another person. And so many of us find our identity in what we do. And so what we do becomes who we are. And what Jesus does now, but ultimately then at the consummation is he reverses the curse. And, and now we find our ultimate identity, not in who we're with, not in what we do, but we find our ultimate identity as children of the father. 
And so no other person can affect my identity. Regardless of what happens in my relationships, it doesn't affect my worth in the eyes of my father. And regardless of what happens in my career, it doesn't affect my worth in the eyes of the father. And so we can walk in victory regardless of our relationships. We can walk in victory regardless of our career, regardless of our popularity, regardless of our success, regardless of our bank accounts. Because we are children of God. You can walk into any room and hold your head up high, not because of your education, not because of who you walk in with, but because of who resides in you. Right? The king is in you. And that should bring self-worth that doesn't come from self-esteem. It comes from our theology. Finally, in verse four, they will see his face. This is tremendous. This is amazing. To see the face of God. What does God look like? Have you ever thought about that before? What does God look like? We tend to make, we tend to make God in our own image, right? So white people see a white Jesus. Brown people see a brown Jesus. Black people see a black Jesus, which I think is beautiful because every human ethnicity is a part of the divine image. You remember last week? No one ethnicity can bear the weight of the full divine image, right? It's, the, it's like a million pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, right? And every ethnicity is one piece. And it's only when you put them all together that you get the full picture of the divine image. What does God look like? He looks like Jesus, right? Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15, the sun, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, what does that mean? So are we going to line up in heaven and get branded? Are we going to get a, a tattoo on our foreheads? Now, this is this is good. Do I want you to, to. Do you want me to? Um... Uh, maybe. Oh yeah, the stamp. Where's <laughs> no, my I was stamp? kidding. I was kidding. No, just keep going. <laughs> anyway. That's why I stamp your what, This is like this is something new I learned that I'm fascinated by. This right, his name will be on their foreheads, right? And this this is, you remember the mark of the beast earlier in Revelation, uh, where but. Jesus, the lamb, also marked his people, right? So there's a spiritual mark. There's a spiritual branding that happens that communicates ownership, right? Um, one commentator said the redeemed will be perfectly possessed by God. Now, turn with me to Exodus chapter 28. And, I, and I, I'm going to connect the dots here for us. And this is amazing. So last week, we looked at the New Jerusalem and the dimensions of the New Jerusalem that were a expanded, a massively expanded version of the Holy of Holies, right? It's a cube. So you, if you try to translate the measurements, it doesn't work, 
right? Because the meaning isn't the measurement. It's the, it's the number, 12,000. 12,000 stadia times 12,000, right? It's the number in apocalyptic literature. And so the New Jerusalem is just a massively expanded holy of holies. And the nations, right? So in the, in, the, in the old covenant, there was the court of the Gentiles, which was the very outer court of the temple. But under the new covenant, in the new Jerusalem, the Gentiles not only get to visit the most holy place, they live there. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, right? To say those that were relegated to the outer courts now permanently reside in the most holy place. And then in Exodus chapter 28, when you're talking about having his name on our foreheads, this is the requirements for the high priest. So who was the first high priest? Pop quiz. Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. And so these are the requirements for the high priest in Exodus chapter 28, beginning in verse 35. Aaron must wear when he ministers, the sound of the bells will be heard. And it, it's elaborate. Like there's an elaborate description of his uniform and the rituals. When he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, engrave on it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be, listen, on Aaron's forehead. And he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. So this is the beauty of the new covenant. Listen, this is the, this is the new Jerusalem. Every Christian is a high priest, not just a priest, but a high priest. Aaron had God's word, holy unto the Lord, that was permanently attached to his turban, hanging down, covering his forehead. He was the high priest, and that, that gave him permission to enter into God's presence. And now, in the new creation, every Christian has holy unto the Lord that stamped on their life in such a way that we are now, we have the privilege of being a high priest, a high priest. Man, that's good news, right? <laughs> For people that feel like we're floundering in the outer courts, there's coming a day when there will be no layers between us and the Almighty. There will be no barriers between us and God and between us and each other. Can you imagine? Can you imagine every nation, every tribe, every tongue <laughs> gathered together in perfect fellowship 
It's, it's where we're headed. It's a promise of God. And they shall reign forever and ever. As we think about this future reality, some of you might wonder, so what? <laughs> I mean, what does that mean for me today? And I want to conclude with a little application. Every Christian is called to be an ambassador of this future reality. I want you to think about this for a moment, that every kingdom person is an ambassador from another dimension. We are called to be kingdom people. And so we are already, listen, we are already citizens of the new Jerusalem. We are already citizens of this future reality. And so we live by a kingdom code of conduct that is radically different from the world around us. We advance the kingdom. You remember Jesus taught us to pray, and he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, present tense, not as it will be someday, but as it is right now. And so every kingdom person is a conduit for a culture of heaven. We're already connected to it by faith. The river that's flowing from the, th the throne of the Lamb is flowing into my life. Christians should usher in the kingdom in bite-sized portions. <laughs> Every act of obedience ushers in a portion of the kingdom. This is how the kingdom advances, not through crusades. No, 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 that's, that's the weapons of the world. That's the way of the world. It's through a kingdom, a, a, a kingdom heart. Christians should be conduits for the kingdom. Those around us should sample the, the heavenly fruit. <laughs> I want you to think about this. The, the tree of life, this, this orchard that is in the New Jerusalem, that we are connected to that orchard now through the Holy Spirit. And so Ephesians chapter 5 says every kingdom person should be filled with the Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 7 that rivers of living water, not droplets of living water, rivers gushing forth from the soul of the kingdom person and that the ultimate evidence of being spirit-filled is spirit fruit. So Christians should be conduits for the kingdom and those around us should have a regular diet of spiritual fruit, right? You know, um, if you've ever been to an orchard before, uh, you never get hit with fruit from a tree. I mean, trees don't fling fruit. <laughs> the fruit drops, right? 
And so if, if, if you hold out your arms like this, right? There is a, um, <laughs> there is a radius, there's a, there's a fruit radius around the life of the kingdom person. And those in that circle should get a regular diet. They should get a taste of heaven. They should get the, the, the spiritual fruit of Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Every Christian should be a spiritual orchard. 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere, right? I mean, Christians should smell like heaven because we are connected to it right now through the spirit. I remember being in Florida in the orange groves in Florida. And you could tell you were approaching a grove by the smell. You could smell it before you could see it. There's this, there was this citrus aroma. And I think this, this, these, these trees, this orchard that we are currently connected to that Christ kingdom people should have this aroma of life, right? The smell of heaven. We should smell like Jesus. <laughs> so that's the practical application is that it's not just a future reality, but this future reality we are connected to it now. There's a pipeline, right? That should produce tremendous hope in the midst of our struggles, right? Where we look up from our struggle and we see where we're headed. The final destination for every Christian is beyond comprehension. It's unimaginably glorious when sorrow and sighing will flee away and the, the, the desert will burst into bloom. And finally, at last, we will be made whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this final chapter of the Bible. And God, I pray you would, by your spirit, give us glimpses, glimpses of glory. And Lord, that we would unleash the river in our lives. Lord, unleash it. God, that the, the willful sin that that dams up the river and creates stagnant water. God, we repent. God, we repent and that your river would burst through these dams and would bring cleansing from the inside out. God, we put down the thimble and we step into the river and pray that 
you would fill us and that you would overflow out of our life and that those around us could sample heaven. God, that they could get a glimpse. They could catch the aroma, a whiff of heaven through us. Help us, Lord, as a church to be an orchard, an oasis. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move into a time of communion now. And this is, this recenters us. Every other week, we come back to the main thing, right? The main thing is the gospel. And that's why Jesus told us to do this regularly. That's why the early church did it every single week. Because we are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So every other week, we come back to the table. And we are reminded of what Jesus did. And this is connects to today. Jesus said, I'm going to eat this supper again with you in the kingdom. <laughs> so it, it reminds us, it helps us to remember what Jesus did, but it also reminds us of what he's going to do. So let's prepare the elements. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.